If you have your Bible with you, uh, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 15. It's a very well-known passage of scripture, um, particularly appropriate for Father's Day. Um, and if you, if you open to Luke chapter 15, you'll see that right at the beginning of the chapter, Luke tells us, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And it's just very important to get that context because in response to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, Jesus tells three stories about the lost and found department. He tells a story about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and then thirdly, the story that we're going to look at, a lost son. But remember the context. There are two groups of people that Jesus is addressing. On the one hand, there are the sinners, uh, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, those who were considered ungodly. And on the other hand, you have the Pharisees, the religious people. And it's just important to bear that in mind as we read the story. So let's look at, at this well-known passage of Scripture. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. 
but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is God's word. This morning I wanted to look at the two lost sons and the prodigal father. Slightly different take on the well-known story, but one I think that fits Jesus' original intention, the two lost sons and the prodigal father. Let's begin by having a look at the lost younger son. And I think that we're most familiar with this kind of lostness. I won't spend so much time on this. Um, We looked at it in that uh, parable that was enacted for us. But here is this younger son who comes to his father and says in verse 12, Father, give me my share of the estate. Which sounds like a reasonable request until you think about it a little bit. A father would normally divide his estate between his children just before he died. So the younger son is effectively saying to his dad, I can't wait around until you're dead to get your money. I want it now. Give it to me. Do you see the crass, self-centered greediness of this request? The son doesn't care about his relationship with his father. He's only interested in what he can get out of his father. And having got what he wants, he packs up all of his possessions and sets off for a distant country. In our day, it would have meant that he immigrated. He puts as much distance between himself and his father as humanly possible. He had no intention of ever coming back. And free from the constraints of home, we are told that in that far country, there he squandered his wealth in wild living. Uh, Later on, the eldest son would go into a bit more detail. He accuses his brother of squandering his father's property with prostitutes. Now, you will know that, unfortunately, this isn't a story about a young man in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. This is a story about me, and it's a story about you and our relationship with God. It's also not necessarily a once-off story about me or a once-off story about you. It's a story that's repeated often in our lives. It needn't be anything particularly dramatic, but all of us, in the words of a song by Michael W. Smith, have taken journeys that have led me far from you. What does it mean to leave home? The writer Henry Nowen suggests that we leave home every time we live as though we don't have a home and must go searching far and wide to find a home. I leave home every time I reject God and go looking for love and affirmation somewhere or in someone else. God puts it this way in Jeremiah chapter 2. He says, My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns, their own wells, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. We leave home every time we reject God and go looking for unconditional love somewhere else or in someone else. But let's turn secondly to the lost older son. Why do I say that the oldest son is lost? Well, look at his actions when his younger brother returns. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. 
The older son is lost because he too is separated from his father. And just as the father goes running out to meet the younger son, so here too the father has to go out to find the older son. You see, lostness is not about whether you are good or bad. Lostness is about whether or not you are at home with your father. And this older son is not at home with his father. In fact, he's never truly been at home with his father. His words betray him. Verse 29, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. We see here that the older son also didn't want his father for his father's sake. He too wanted the things that his dad could give him more than he wanted a relationship with his father. And that's so important to see. Both sons don't want their father for his own sake. They simply want to control their father and get what they want from him. They just do it in two different ways. One did so by being very bad and the other did so by being extremely good. This second lostness is actually very dangerous because on the outside it actually looks very good. Remember that in describing the older son, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were good people. Make no mistake, they obeyed all of the rules. In fact, they were the ones who made up the rules. So this kind of lostness is so dangerous because it's subtle. You see, it's possible to be extremely good and not to have an intimate friendship with God. On the most basic level, there are some people who follow Jesus simply for what they can get out of him. That happened in Jesus' day too. Remember John chapter 6. Jesus says to the crowds who are following him, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. So some people follow Jesus because they want wealth or healing or a better marriage. As I heard one pastor say recently, it's possible to use God in order to get the things that we really worship. It's possible to use God in order to get the things that we really worship. But there are more subtle forms of this as well. Maybe we want the goodness and the respectability that religion gives us. And so there are some folk who go along to church each week and they give of their money, perhaps even attend a midweek Bible study, but they don't have a living relationship with God through Jesus Christ. They want the respectability and the sense of goodness that the Christian faith gives them, but they know nothing of the intimacy and the joy of a genuine relationship where all of life is lived out before God. And what happens is that they actually use religion to hide from God. I'm doing all of these good things for God so he can leave me alone. In fact, he owes me. He can't ask anything of me whatsoever because I'm paying my dues. I'm going to church. I'm giving of my time and energy. Keeping the rules can actually be a way of keeping God at arm's length. 
There are other folk who maybe want the excitement and the energy and the enjoyment, the sense of purpose that Christianity can bring. You know, when we think of Pharisaic faith, we tend to think of men in three-piece suits who look very somber and carry a Bible to church. But hiding from God in religion is not simply confined to conservative Christians. It's possible to be an outgoing, charismatic Christian and not be genuinely at home with your father. Remember how in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus said that on the day of judgment, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. There are some folk who want the feelings for God and the experiences of God more than they want God himself. So in fact, there are all kinds of ways in which we can be very religious and yet not be genuinely at home with our Father. Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9 reminds us that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And so we simply need to be aware that behind our best actions can be selfish motives. I know in my own life there are times when I'll listen to a Christian preacher or I'll read a good Christian book or I'll read the biography of a good Christian person and I'll think to myself, I want what that person has. But on deeper reflection I discover to my shame that I don't want the relationship with God that person has. I want to be known as someone who has a deep relationship with God. Do you see the radicalness of Jesus' teaching in this parable then? Uh, this past week you may have picked up, I've been reading the book The Prodigal God by Pastor Tim Keller. It's where I gained a number of insights into this passage. I highly recommend the book to you. But in the book, Tim Keller says this, Jesus doesn't divide the world into moral good guys and the immoral bad guys. He shows us that everyone is dedicated to a project of self-salvation, to use God and others in order to get power and control for ourselves. We're just going about it in different ways. I think it's significant that of the two lost sons, Jesus pictures the first son as being found. But when it comes to the second son, the jury is still out. We're left at the end of the parable wondering, will the older son go into the party and be with his father or not? And the message seems to be that it's easier for people who know they are lost to return to their father than it is for people who do not realize that they are lost. In fact, in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus says this to the religious leaders. I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. It's those who know that they are lost who are more likely to be found. Well, having looked at two kinds of lostness, let's look finally at the prodigal father. Because looking carefully at the nature and the actions of the Father is what saves us out of our lostness, whether we are lost in our badness or whether we are lost in our goodness. It's looking at the Father, this prodigal Father, 
It's looking at, at God's love for us, reminding ourselves of his love that is the solution to being lost. The word prodigal doesn't mean wayward or lost. It actually means recklessly extravagant, which is obviously what the younger son was in order to lose all of his money. But it, it means to spend until you have nothing left. And in that sense, we can call God the prodigal father, the one who spends until he has nothing left. There are some people who read this parable and say, you see, there's no sacrifice here. No one has to die. God is a God of universal love who unconditionally accepts everyone, no matter what. Forgiveness and love should always be free and unconditional. But that's to miss the elements of sacrifice that are implicit in this story. Look at the father's actions towards the older son. You know, the older son refuses to go into the house, and so we read that the father goes out to him, which was completely against the cultural norms of that time. A respected older man did not go out into the courtyard to his son. The son was supposed to come to him. It's a picture of condescension that reminds us of our Lord Jesus who leaves the glory of heaven and comes out, comes down to earth. As Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. The Father comes out to seek his lost older son. Notice the way that the older son speaks to his dad. He doesn't address him as father, as one would do in that culture. He says, look, all these years. In effect, he's saying, look here, you. No son would speak to his father in that way. But the father freely bears the anger and the insults of the older son in order to get him back. And the father addresses the older brother as, my dear son, verse 31, my dear son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. And then, of course, there's the father's actions towards the younger son. What, what was it that made the younger son return home? What was his motivation? It wasn't a matter of his heart. It was a matter of his stomach. <laughs> Even the younger son's repentance is completely selfish. You know, I'll go back to my father because I'll get a better meal there. And do you see what this means? It's not the son's repentance that causes the father's love. It's not the son's regret and feelings that cause the father's love. It's the opposite. The father's lavish love makes it possible for the younger son to repent. Have a look at verse 20. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Such a significant picture. Remember that Jesus lived in an honor and shame society. The younger son had brought great shame to his father, his family, indeed to his whole village. The father shouldn't be accepting the son at all, but at the very least, he should stand there and make his son make the long, shameful trudge all the way through the village until he comes to him, falls at his feet, and begs for forgiveness. 
But the father doesn't allow the son to bear the shame. Instead, he bears it himself. He runs so that he can meet his son outside the village and walk back home with him. He doesn't want him to take that walk alone. And in fact, this act of running, which is so ordinary to us, some people jog for fun, it brought shame on the father. In those days, men of the father's age and status did not run. Children might run, women might run, young men might run. But the owner of a great estate, an older, dignified pillar of the community, he wouldn't pick up his robes and bare his legs like some boy. But the father does. He bears the shame. That is the essence of forgiveness, that someone has to bear the shame. If you come over to my house and you knock over a lamp and break it, I can choose to accept your offer to pay for it, or I can choose to pay for it myself. But there is a cost, and someone has to pay it. Forgiveness takes place when I decide to, do, to, to bear the cost myself. The forgiveness is free and unconditional to you, but it's costly to me. And that's what the father does. He bears the economic cost of what his son has done. And he bears the shame. In verse 22, the father shouts, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Reminds me of the Sunday school teacher who said to her class, who was angry when the younger son returned? And one little girl put up her hand and said, the fattened calf. (laughs) (laughs) The best robe in the house would have been the father's own robe. It was a sign that the son had been restored to the family. The father is saying, in effect, I'm not going to wait until you've paid off your debt. I'm going to simply take you back. I will cover your nakedness, poverty, and rags with the robes of my office and honor. And this is what God has done for each of us in Christ Jesus. To quote Tim Keller again, that on the cross Jesus was stripped naked of his robe and dignity, so that we could be clothed with the dignity and standing we don't deserve. On the cross, Jesus was treated as an outcast, so that we could be brought into God's family freely by grace. There, Jesus drank the cup of eternal justice, so that we might have the cup of the Father's joy. Father sacrifices for both sons. He goes out to them both. He bears the anger and the insults of the older son, and he bears the shame and the economic cost of the younger son. Both are freely forgiven and unconditionally accepted because the father bears the cost. Neither have to do anything at all. So please notice then that for us, it's not the fear of punishment or an understanding of our guilt, 
or feelings of shame that radically change us. Rather, it's a full understanding of how freely and graciously we are loved and accepted. That's what changes us. When we understand how much we are loved freely, unconditionally, that changes us. I remember hearing one past illustrated uh, like this. He said, uh, imagine that I go on holiday and I ask Grant to house it for me. And when I get back from my holiday, Grant says to me, by the way, while you were away, a bill arrived and I paid it for you. I wouldn't know how to thank Grant until I understood the debt that he paid. Maybe it was just uh, two rand on a letter that had insufficient postage, and I would say thanks very much. If he pays my municipal account of 3,000 rand, I would be deeply grateful and very impressed. If he told me that he'd paid my bond, I would be grateful for the rest of my life. <laughs> Grant's house-sitting for me in two weeks' time. <laughs> I, hope, I hope you're taking notes. <laughs> But you see, it's only when we understand how much we have been forgiven, how much our debt has cost someone else, that we fully understand how much we should love. And when we understand that forgiveness is totally free and unconditional for us, but that God has paid the cost through his own blood shed on the cross, that radically changes our lives. We need to keep on reminding ourselves and thinking, in the words of Martin Luther, beating into our head the fact that we are loved unconditionally, that God has paid for each of us. That sounds like a dangerous thing to do, to get people to change by understanding God's unconditional love. But let me quote Tim Keller one last time. He says, some years ago I met a lady who said that growing up she'd always heard that God accepts us only if we are sufficiently good and ethical. She'd never heard the message that we can be accepted by God by sheer grace through the work of Christ, regardless of anything we do or have done. She said to me, that is a scary idea. It's a good idea, but it's scary. I was intrigued and asked her, what was so scary about unmerited, free grace? She replied, if I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty, and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if it's really true that I am a sinner saved by sheer grace at God's infinite cost, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. She knew that if Jesus really had done this for her, she was not her own. She was bought with a price. As the hymn writer says, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul my life, my all. So this morning on Father's Day, can I ask you, are you at home with your Father, loving, enjoying, and serving Him for His own sake, recognizing His presence throughout the day, 
living all of life before him and with him, inviting him into every area of your life, trusting him with your deepest thoughts and feelings, the things he knows already. Are you enjoying an intimate relationship with him? Not in a distant country, trying to live without any, any reference to the one who is your creator and your redeemer, and also not just in church trying to be good, but at home with our prodigal father, the one who spends until he has nothing left, the one who carried the full cost of our sin and shame and mess so that we can freely return to him.